Hi friends, welcome back. Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast as we continue our season working through the Gospel of Luke. We're just in the second episode of what I trust will be an exciting journey, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this entire very important Gospel. If you're here for the very first time, then why not click on the subscribe button and make not only the study of this book of the Bible, but of the whole Bible, part of the rhythm of your daily life. New episodes are posted every day, Monday to Friday, with the occasional bonus episode and bonus season dropped in at the weekends or between main seasons. Why not also pay a visit to us on the Bible project of buzzsprout.com it's there that you'll find links to all the ways that you can connect to us, as well as additional free Bible teaching resources. So thanks again for joining me, and hang on at the end, and I'll tell you more about how you can connect with this ministry. Bye-bye for now. Everybody, it seems, like to understand their origins. People, organisations, movements, and yes, even churches, they all seek to understand where they began, what are their origins. This may explain why when I meet people, not just in everyday life, but also within the Christian context, the first standard question is, where do you come from? Whether it be personal-wise or faith-wise. I understand that because knowing their background might tell us something about people, where they're coming from and where it might suggest where they're going to. Admittedly, it's not always accurate. Most people when in the UK, when they hear my name, my accent, they assume I'm either as Catholic as the very Pope himself or more Protestant than the King of England. And neither is true, in fact. I just define myself as a Christian, a believer, a disciple, and a follower of Christ. True, I grew up in the Methodist tradition and I spent most of my Christian expression and leadership within the Baptist Church, but at the heart I define myself as a Christian believer. But people still love to know where we came from and what are our origins. I suppose it's akin to asking a business how long have you been in operation, how did you get started? So I suppose in some sense that principle, well, it certainly seems to apply to Christianity for many people as well. So let's ask that question today, when and how did it start? Now I'm not talking about the Bible or Israel, but the origins of Christianity itself. When did it start? What was the initial spark that ignited it? In the book of Acts, the Apostle Peter describes the beginning of Christianity as having begun with the baptism of Christ, which indeed marks the beginning of Christ commencing his public ministry. Yet Mark's Gospel would say it takes us further back, not to Jesus' baptism, but to John the Baptist's ministry. However, in Luke's Gospel, the beginnings of all things is located even earlier than that, it's not at the baptism of Christ, or even at his birth, or the ministry of John the Baptist. The starting point is simply the announcement to John the Baptist's parents of the coming of him and the future Messiah. When I speak of the beginning, I'm not talking about the beginning of the church, but I'm talking and beginning with a more broader beginning moment in time, if you like. 
the Old Testament revelations ceased around 400 BC. So what happened after that? Well, there was a sort of spiritual silence for around 400 years. Now, I want to delve into how all of this started, the beginning, and see what valuable lessons it can teach us. And I believe the beginning of the Christian story begins in Luke chapter 1. And what's revealed here, I believe, still holds true for us today. I'll be covering several verses in this episode, and we'll do what I usually do. We'll walk through the passage verse by verse. I'll read a few, discuss them, and then walk through the narrative that way. But today I'm using this text to pursue one basic, simple, profound truth, something that I think we should consider critical to our understanding of the Christian faith. So let's begin in verse 5, and in my Bible, this passage is actually entitled, The Birth of John the Baptist Foretold. So beginning at verse 5, we were picking up after where we finished last time, it tells us, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. The first introduction is to this couple. Now our focus here is on Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth. Zachariah, he was a priest and it was his job to serve in the temple. Now let me give you some additional background here. Remember David divided the priests into 24 divisions. Each division served in the temple twice a year. Zacharias is one of those chosen for this service and here we're introduced to him and his wife Elizabeth. Now we'll learn more about this later but for now I want to point out they're simply presented here as a faithful couple faithfully fulfilling their service which for him was in the temple. Verse 6 tells us both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. There you go. That's a significant statement. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Their righteousness by faith. Zechariah and Elizabeth here are righteous by faith. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are seen here as people who keep all the Mosaic law. Simply put, it's telling us they were faithful. They walked in the will and the way of God. They were law-abiding members, if you like, of God's family. But verse 7 reveals a significant challenge that they faced in their personal life. It tells us, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. In Jewish culture, childlessness was a serious matter. It was even grounds for divorce, with some rabbis listing it among the seven excommunicatable offences. Yet despite this, they still remained faithful. In their life, they were seeking the Lord, not seeking the approval or the applause of other people. Their faithfulness in following God's plan, his path is evidence. They maintained their faithfulness by doing and in doing what God had called them to do in life. So first and foremost, we need to get out of this passage that Zacharias was a faithful man. He diligently followed God's guidance and fulfilled the ministry that God entrusted to him. This did not, of course, mean that his life was free from challenges. For him, the big one was the fact that he and his wife were childless. That's a huge concern. Yet even in that, he continued to serve the Lord faithfully. 
The second remarkable aspect about Zechariah's story, which we will see unfold through the verses that follows, that he was granted a unique and awe-inspiring privilege. Well, let's hear about what it is. We pick up the story in verse 8. Once, when Zacharias's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, you may recall, this is talking about the division into the various groups of priests. His priests is called to serve in this way and on this occasion called out of that group to serve in the additional way of going into the temple itself. Now you may recall the construction of the temple that we covered off in some depth in the closing chapters of the book of Exodus. The tabernacle served as a sort of prototype for the temple that was to come. And within that there was an outer court, a holy place, and most notably a holy of holies. And in the holy place an altar of incense was found. And priests would enter twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, to sacrifice and to offer incense on the altar. Now consider there were estimated to be around 20,000 priests in that tribe, that priestly class. Those being selected to potentially enter the holy place and to offer incense, those from among whom a special, rare and exceptional privilege would fall upon their call to be selected to enter into the holy place and to offer incense and burn it there. This isn't an everyday occurrence and many never ever had that opportunity in their life. The selection process involved the casting of lots. Only one priest would be chosen while two others would accompany him into the holy place. Two accompanying priests would then step aside and the chosen one would be left alone for a time. And during this all going on, a multitude of people would be waiting outside during the time of this burning of the incense. They would be outside anticipating the priest's return and hearing his blessing. So we're informed here that that's what's going on here. Zacharias is chosen and he's given this extraordinary privilege of entering the holy place. So it's not just a routine thing that he's doing every day. This is a one-off special occasion where he is very much the centre of attention. In verse 10 we learn that it says, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. So this, of course, is a mighty significant moment. However, there's more to come. Zacharias is in the holy place and this angel of the Lord appears to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And we see Zacharias's natural reaction to be overwhelmed with fear and astonishment. So in and of itself, this is already an extraordinary privilege for him to be in this situation. But this is further magnified by a visitation from an angel. And over 1,500 years of biblical history up to this point, only a very few individuals have had the privilege of encountering an angel in such a way. We can think of examples like Abraham and Daniel, but this is obviously a very rare special privilege. And obviously it startled him, and he's troubled and filled with fear. I mean, think about it. If you were alone in a place and there was nobody else with you, and then suddenly an angel appeared. Wouldn't you be astonished, maybe even afraid? 
I certainly think I can identify with how he felt here. But then we see the angel speak to him and comfort him. Verse 13 tells us, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. Just think of the privilege he's experiencing here. He's in the holy place and he's had a visitation from an angel and now he's being told that thing that they desired, that despite his age and his wife's being old and past childbearing years, they're going to have a son. You would have thought at one level this might make him ecstatic. Though the angel then assures him, I heard your prayers and you can trust this promise. So additionally, the angel tells Zacharias that he and Elizabeth are going to have their son and they're going to name him John. Which actually, very simply, the name John means the Lord is gracious. But in verse 14, we see further things are promised. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is to never take wine or other fermented drinks, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel's point here is that when this baby arrives, when it is born, their people are going to experience immense joy. He will be great in the sight of the Lord, it says, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This child is destined to be special. He's someone who's not going to seek pleasure in life through drinking or carousing. His joy will come from his relationship with God, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the very beginning, the angel says. This angel is foretelling that this guy is going to be someone who's going to have a remarkable ministry, one that will impact the entire nation of Israel. He's even quoting the book of Amalekai at this point and applying it to him, emphasizing that he is the one that will fill the prophecy about someone like Elijah coming before the Lord himself, the Messiah himself, to prepare the way. Can you imagine being a parent and receiving such news about the future impact that your child will have? And in verse 18 of Luke 1, we see Zachariah's response to all this. Zachariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Zachariah may very well here be recalling the story of Sarah and Abraham, who had a son, despite their old age. Knowing this story, he questions the angels and says, how can I be sure of this? How does a man know if his wife is pregnant in those days, other than maybe a bit of morning sickness? There could be no way of knowing for months. So the question is tightly reasonable. He's simply asking, how am I going to know that this is going to be the case? In other words, he's struggling at a level and wants to know what physical evidence he will see and how he can believe what he's being told, despite the circumstances of this angel being here. And the angel responds, and this is where we find out it's Gabriel, and the angel says to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. So the angel Gabriel here emphasizes his authority and the divine source of his message. 
You tell Zacharias you're talking to Gabriel and I have just come from God's very presence himself to deliver to you this incredible news. Now pay attention to what Zacharias said in the previous verse. He said, my wife is well advanced in years. So what he's saying, when I look at my physical, worldly situation, I'm concluding that what you're saying is impossible. So he's grappling with the apparent impossibility physically of the situation. But we see Gabriel, the angel, counter his doubt by saying, Listen, I came from God's presence himself, and I'm here to tell you that despite your circumstances, this thing is entirely possible. You may look at your situation and may think it's impossible, but God will never be limited by human circumstances, his then or ours today. He's thinking of his human circumstances and saying, my wife is past childbearing age. How am I going to have a child? So on one level, Zacharias isn't really convinced yet. But then in verse 20, we see Gabriel declare, But now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you have not believed my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So the angel underscores the consequences of Zachariah's disbelief in this occasion. He is rendered mute, unable to utter a word, and he will remain in that state until the events are seen to unfold. And then in the next couple of verses, we see the aftermath. Meanwhile, the people who were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple, when he came out, they saw he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. So the people waiting outside the temple, they obviously realised that something extraordinary had occurred when Zacharias, well, he was in there for an unusually long time. And when he finally emerges, well, the look on his face combined with the fact he cannot speak. People gather from that that he's seen a vision in the temple. And although he can't explain it because he's mute, the people know that something astonishing has happened. And then the text goes on to tell us that as soon as his week of service in the temple was finished, Zacharias returns home, but remember, still in silence. Then the final verse tells us today, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. So Elizabeth here immediately recognises that this pregnancy is a divine intervention, removing, as she sees it, the curse of her having to live a childless life. Okay, what I've shared so far today is pretty straightforward. It told us who Zacharias is, it told us about his special privileges, but then following the revelation of the angel, of the circumstances that would be played out, Zacharias is seen to not believe the word of the angel of the Lord, or at least to doubt it anyway. So what we see here is God announcing the beginning of something really special, something new. But the one who first receives that message, we see doesn't actually fully believe it. And that's interesting because that's also how Christianity began. That's how it all began. So all of these events are set here to set the stage of how Christianity starts. The New Testament opens with the tale of a faithful servant, a guy who enjoys special privileges, but yet still fails to believe 
God's message. Consequently, he faces the consequences of his unbelief. And that's the basis of the story. Of course, there's more coming next time and we'll see the fulfillment of it and what great joy there will be in that. But I just quickly went through this part of the story today because I wanted us to have time now to consider and discuss how it might apply to us today. Well, I think the first thing I have to say is that it is God's plan, always God's desire for us is for us to believe. We are meant to read his word with faith and trust what it says. According to Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. So the point, the first point is straightforward. God wants us to have faith and if we seek him, he will reveal to us his purposes and give us the gift of faith to believe in him also. So what we have here is this guy a servant of the Lord who is diligent in his service of the Lord, but he doesn't believe it when God's word comes directly to him personally. And I suppose an important message to take out of this is that the problem of unbelief is not limited to atheists and skeptics. Even Christians, even servants of the Lord, even believers can struggle at times with unbelief. Some people, of course, attend church regularly and do not even believe in God. Some people read their Bible all the time and don't believe in God. And some people may do all of those things and even spend time in prayer and still struggle with unbelief. Even people, it shows us here, who serve in various capacities of leadership can also fall into this trap of unbelief. The point is a very simple one, and that is that unbelief can creep into the lives of even the most devout servants and believers of God. And we must always guard against this by believing in the promises and the word of God. My point is simple. Here we saw a faithful servant who didn't believe God's message. But also, bear in mind, friends, that's not a rare occurrence in the Bible. Here we have a man who had special privileges privileges that in his day few could match within the faith community and he is still someone who didn't believe. I could spend a great deal of time on just this issue if I wanted to. In Romans chapter 10 the whole chapter covers the very concept I'm talking about. It's an argument that he develops by Paul showing that Israel itself as a nation has special privileges but still didn't believe God and through 10, 11 and 12 of that book he unpacks the significance and the consequences of that. So you may be excellent in your practice, in the working, the ritual of your service, but that doesn't guarantee that you won't and that you shouldn't be aware that you have the potential to face failures, both individually, as seen with Zacharias here, and collectively, as discussed by Paul in Romans 10 to 12, based around consideration of the nation of Israel. Sometimes even Christians, people who are blessed and have significant, important roles, would be considered successful, one might say, they can still be in danger of getting to a place where they don't believe. But God here, he's the faithful one, and although he says if you don't believe you're going to have consequences, he's still going to work his plan and his purposes. And for Zacharias here, it was the fact that he wasn't able to speak. He couldn't speak for months. He wouldn't speak again until the child was born, as we shall see tomorrow. 
And as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, so as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared my oath in anger, they shall never enter my rest. Meaning that those individuals, that generation, wouldn't enter the land. The writer to the Hebrews then goes on to say, Beware, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But encourage one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The Bible clearly talks about how having awesome spiritual privileges is still about having a privileged spiritual position does not exclude us from the danger of not believing in God. That's dealt with in Hebrews 3 here. 1 Corinthians 10 also covers it, and we see it outworked here in the circumstances of Zacharias in this passage in Luke. But it's all over the Bible. Aaron, for instance, didn't believe God when he struck the rock twice, and the consequences was that he wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land. David was a man that it said on one hand was after God's own heart, but on the other on occasions didn't believe God. Well, clearly he wasn't believing God or following God when he committed adultery and murder, and we see the consequences for him was he effectively lost his kingdom. And the children of Israel as a nation chose not to believe God for a period of time, which is what the passage I've just read is talking about. And as a consequence of that, they wandered in the wilderness for the rest of that generation's lives. My point is that there are consequences for not believing God. So the point for today is, friends, is that you should choose, wherever you can, always, always believe what God has said and what God has promised. Get the message? Believe God. He's been faithful to you. You should be faithful to him. Today, we're all privileged. We all live in a situation where we're free to express our Christian faith, or pretty much everybody, I believe, listening to this today. But in spite of that, we can still choose to not believe what the Lord God is saying. And I think that's the big point of this passage. Once in a doctor's waiting room, I read one of those magazines that they lay around on the table, and I think it had an exceptional illustration of how trust is and how trust works. Can't remember the name of the author. It was the biography of someone who had some connection with the circus. Anyway, it was talking about the special relationship that a flyer and a catcher have on the trapeze. The flyer is the one who lets go, and the catcher is the one who catches. And the flyer swings high above the crowd on the trapeze, and then the moment comes when he must let go. And he flies through the air, and his job is simply to fly through the air and remain as still and as calm as possible and to wait for that moment where the strong hand of the catcher literally plucks him out of the air. One of the trapeze artists said, and I quote, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust that the catcher will catch him. So we too, friends, I believe, must wait and trust in God to do exactly what his nature tells us he will do.
Okay, friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Can I remind you that these studies are hosted on the thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com. They're available all over the internet on all the main podcast platforms. But it is on the thebibleproject.buzzsprout you'll find ways in which you can reach out and connect to this ministry. It's there you'll find a full transcript of everything I've said today, as well as an episode notes page, and also links to places like the socials, the YouTube channel, even to Patreon, where you can choose to partner to this ministry and reach out and contact me there if you wish. That's the people who've decided to support this ministry and enable it to be free for the vast majority of people all around the world. And if you are enjoying this, can I suggest that perhaps you maybe share it with friends or like it or subscribe to it? Well, by subscribing to it, you'll never miss another single episode. That way, you'll have made the commitment to make the in-depth study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your everyday life. And of that, I'm sure God will bless you. So there we go, friends. Great to be back with you again today. Great to be back in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke. And I do hope you'll stick with us. And I'll see you back here again tomorrow. But that's it for now. And it's bye from me, from the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye now.